Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is here in our home, my friend Emma Meekham. Welcome to the podcast, Emma. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, we're going to talk about Emma's journey with pretty severe depression, and I'll just give you an oversight um, of the content of the podcast before we get into it. This kind of started... Um, with Emma at about age 17 as she was finishing up high school. She grew up in Firth, Idaho, which is just a little south of Idaho Falls. And it started a, a spiral for her that has been a real difficult journey for the last five years. Emma is now 22 as a BYU student. And she reached out to me, like many of my guests do, and just said, you know, I think I'm at a point in my life of healing and hope where my story would help others. And so I'm really grateful that Emma's here. Um, she, as I mentioned, is a BYU student. She's a, a receptionist in the BYU Counseling and, uh, psych and how do I call that department? Psychological Services. Psychological <laughs> Services, which I've learned is a very helpful department for many BYU students. Uh, she's studying film. She loved to work for the church in film production. As we all know, the church makes some great quality film productions, and I would guess they're looking for more talent, and hopefully Emma can find her way in that direction. Um, in the, often my guests bring somebody with them, um, and her friend Celeste um, is here with her. She won't be on the podcast, but is here for moral support, and um, Emma called Celeste, Celeste the Angel. <laughs> and Celeste is also just finished as a BYU student, is starting a master's program at BYU in marriage and family therapy. So good luck to you, Celeste, in your career. Um, is that okay from a biographic standpoint, Emma? Did I mess up anything? No, nope, that sounds great. <laughs> so tell us, our listeners, you have a church calling in your stake as a senior in high school five years ago. Tell our listeners what that calling was. Yeah. So when I was seven, when I was a junior going into my senior year, uh, they called me to be the stake youth council president, uh, mm -hmm. co-president. And I was, when I got that calling, I was just so excited. I was like, let's go, let's do some cool things with the youth. I was just, I was really excited. And I was thinking, um, as a, it was a year long calling and as I was nearing the end of my year-long calling, um, we had this fireside, um, and I, w I was asked to conduct it. And I was sitting there on the stand just thinking about um, kind of the activities we had planned that year and how, in, in my mind, they had just all sort of fallen flat. I, I feel like I hadn't done my best as a president and hadn't done... I don't know, just hadn't done my best. And, and as I was sitting there, just this very loud voice in the back of my head said, you know, Emma, maybe you're just not as good as you thought you were. And that was, that was the beginning of my mental health journey. And it was just kind of, it kind of, I let that voice eat at me for, for a long time. And sometimes it still gets to me, but, um, it was, it was really interesting. <laughs> That's a really honest um, thing to share with all of us listeners. Um, that's a pretty difficult voice to hear yeah. um, at a time when it could be a great just um, capstone time to this year long of, of service. I, I would guess you put tens of or more hundreds of hours into this calling and and did your very best. And for that voice to come in and what could be a really tender, sweet, finishing capstone experience was probably not what you were expecting. No, it wasn't. And before, um, before this voice came, I was, I was a really confident person. I, I knew I wasn't perfect, but I was really confident in my abilities and just doing my best. Um, but after that, it was just, it was such a stark difference. It, I, I was anxious. I was depressed. I just, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't as sure of myself anymore because it was always that voice, just like, you're not as good as if you thought you, you were. When you were a junior and a sophomore, were those kind of voices in your head or was this just totally out of left field and kind of a first time experience? Yeah, it was totally out of left field. I had never 
experienced anything like that before. It was it was crazy. <laughs> Keep yeah. So tell us um, at that. Tell us what happened next. Um, I think you went to BYU that fall. Yeah. So the the fall after I graduated, I was shipped straight to BYU. My dream school. I had for the longest time I had always wanted to go to BYU and um and before that um in probably about March before I graduated I started going to therapy um there in Idaho Falls and the therapist was great he was just wonderful and very kind and um and so I had officially you know quote unquote graduated from therapy and we did this voice experiencing send you to therapy is that what caused you to worry enough that you opened up to somebody? Yeah. So in probably in November of my senior year, I was when this all happened was when this started. And, um, and so I, I kept it, I kept it pretty much to myself. The only person I told was my seminary teacher and he was just wonderful. He was, he was such a good man and has helped me through a lot. And he, he was the one who actually recommended I go get some counseling and, but I was, I was so nervous to tell my parents. I don't know why, but I was just very nervous until one day in probably February or March, I just broke down to my mom and was like, I, I think I'm depressed. And, uh, and so she was like, okay, let's, you know, and I told her my seminary teacher thinks I should go get counseling. And she was like, okay, like, I, I love my mom. She's a woman of action. And tell us your mom's first name. Uh, my mom's name is Deslin. Deslin. Yeah. And she, she's, so a, she handled this pretty well. Yeah. Like right after I, right after I talked to her, she got on the phone with, um, then LDS family services and was like, how, okay, how does this work? And can we get her into counseling? And, and so that's where I met my first therapist and he was awesome. Like I said, did you get a diagnosis? Um, depression and anxiety, you know, the, I know there's more medical terms for that, but that was, that was the diagnosis. Yeah. Where do you think that voice came from? Do you think it came, I mean, some voices that come into our brains are kind of self-manufactured. Some maybe come from Satan, some from other sources. Where do you think that voice came from? I think it was definitely a Satan voice for sure, because, because nothing, I knew, reflecting back, I knew it wasn't the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost has never been that loud. It was, I just remember it was a very loud voice. It was just very loud and very grating and very kind of arrogant. And so I knew it wasn't from Heavenly Father. It was definitely one of those Satan voices. Uh, Did you, have you ever gotten a feeling from God that he accepts your service for that year assignment? Um, Sort of an opposite voice that you heard on the stand that day. Did you ever get a feeling from God that he approved of what you did or have you just moved on kind of knowing that you needed to move on? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I've never, never really thought of that. Um, I know it was something that that needed to happen, um, and I don't regret having that calling. Like people have asked me, do you, like therapists have asked me, you know, do you regret having that calling? And no, I don't. Um, I definitely think it was something that needed to happen as part of my journey, and and I recognize that. I know God recognizes that, um, but I've never, like you said, I've never. Um, I've never like felt like, I guess, come to peace with that. I mean, I have, but, um, I've never, I've never thought about it in that way. I've never thought of maybe I should. (laughs) And maybe the fact you don't have regret about the calling is a way that you've been giving, given peace from God that you've done what you needed to do. Yeah. I've always, this is not the focus of this podcast, Emma, but I've always, I think of these dissertation projects <laughs> that people could take on, and I've, I've wondered what if we could poll all the faithful LDS people that have done their best in callings, and they were completely honest about how they felt about their own service. Mm. I think God would give us better marks, and our leaders would give us better marks than we'd often give ourselves. Probably. <laughs> um, I think we're harder on ourselves, and we see the times when we didn't, maybe feel like we did everything we could. 
And um, I think God, I love the word grace in our gospel that we're not expected to do it at all. Um, we're expected to do our best and have best intentions. And God, you know, through the atonement and through grace, which is this new part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm trying to understand better, make up the difference. I've I've certainly felt that as a singles word bishop when I gave blessings to newly returned missionaries. I just overwhelmingly, I felt God's love for them and acceptance of what they've done and often a reminder that God didn't expect them to be perfect on their mission. We kind of set this bar as to be perfectly obedient or exact obedience. And I don't think any missionary leaving the mission field on that plane or train or however we get home from missions these days yeah, completely felt like he or she did that every day of their mission. So I think, I think God is, you know, there's probably some examples where God's disappointed in our performance in a calling and we know that, but yeah. I think the majority of the time he's, is grateful for us doing our very best efforts. And I think our efforts need to be compared to ourselves and not to others. Sometimes we sort of measure our calling success. That's not really good vocabulary <laughs> in context of others that have had the similar callings and sort of try to look at what they've done and how, what we've done as a way to validate if we did a good job or not. And I think it's just helping people come into Christ and doing our best. For sure. Now, when you finished therapy in Idaho Falls and you're ready to go to Provo, did you sort of feel you were better and sort of put this behind you and were at a good spot as you left to Provo? I yeah, I was I was so excited to go to Provo. I was so excited to be at BYU and I had I had a couple friends there. I was 18, fresh out of high school. I didn't know any of my roommates, but I was just excited to get away from home and and start college and I had done, you know, relatively well in high school. So I was like, oh, this will be just like high school. Right. And, um, and it was going great for like the, the first week. And then that first, I think Labor Day weekend, I was there in Provo. I was at a friend's house. Um, this friend had served her mission in in Firth and she was a missionary there and just stayed really good friends and she was awesome. And so I was over at her house and we were watching a movie and in the middle of this movie, suddenly just a feeling of dread just washed over me. It was so, it was just pure. Yeah. It was just pure dread. And I didn't know what it was from or how to get rid of it. And I told, I told this friend of mine, like, I'm, I'm really scared. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I might do. Um, and she was, she just handled it like a champ. She asked me some really just honest and vulnerable questions. And, and we decided that the best thing to do was to go to the ER and just, get assessed, get stabilized. And so they took me there and, and this was the first time I'd ever been in a hospital for myself, like for, for any reason. And, and so this was, this was all new to me. And, um, it was just a really strange experience. Um, but I could feel the love from a lot of different people from like my friend and my Bishop and just a lot of different people. Um, but they, so they made me do a safety plan and then they, they sent me home with my friend for the weekend. And this was, this was my first week of classes and I had my first Friday class the next day. Yeah, this was a Thursday night. I had my first Friday class the next day. And, and I remember sleeping over at her house and saying, I'm not going to my Friday class. I just, I was in the hospital last night. I'm not doing it. And it was just, it was not how I anticipated my first week at college going. It was very different. <laughs> Thanks for having the courage to share that. Yeah. Um, what did your friend, it sounds like your friend asked some really good questions. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if she had some clinical training or just good intuition. Share with our listeners some of those questions, just to help our listeners to know what kind of questions that are helpful. Do you remember? Yeah. Um, I mean, she was just, she was just very blunt and she has had her own share of just mental health struggles. So I'm sure that's how she knew. Um, but she would just ask very blunt questions like, are you, are you suicidal? And are you, 
Um, and then at this point, um, and during high school a little bit, self-harm had been kind of a thing. And she was like, okay, like, what are you using to do that and where? And just very, she was just very blunt. And, and, and I know I don't speak for everyone, but for me, I really appreciate when people, you know, ask me those hard things because yeah, they're uncomfortable to answer, but they need to be answered. And, and I appreciate that someone cared enough to ask me those hard questions. And Why is it to. a good idea to ask those questions and to be very specific? Some people be worried about saying the word suicide out loud or right. self-harm or, or even asking how you're harming yourself or where, or how frequent. Why is, that a, why is that a good thing generally to ask? For me, I think it makes it less scary, I guess, if that's the right word. It makes it, it to say it out loud, it makes it like there's someone safe with you who hears that and there's someone who can hold that and still be okay with you. And that means a lot to me personally. Um, it just, yeah, it just makes it less scary and less because, because when you're just holding it inside, it's just, I don't know what to do. It's just you. Whereas if you have, if you tell someone then it's you and them and your power is combined and it's really, it's, I've always appreciated when people have asked me difficult things. Yeah, that's my, I'm not clinically trained, but that's my um, understanding is if I ask more general questions like, could you hurt yourself or, but if I go all the way to, are you suicidal and do you have a plan and what is your plan and tell me your plan, then I'm signaling to you, I'm safe for you to fully open up to me because I'm willing to go all the way there for you. Yeah. And so I'm safe. And then you can do what you're talking about. You'll be able to open up and and not keep it inside and get the help you need. Exactly. And feel like there's a real friend that can go where you need to go. So, um, wow, you went to the ER. Yeah. Um, that's not what you thought would happen your first week of school. And, it was not. Yeah. And you're not ready to go to class on Friday. And you no. told your friend. So keep telling your story, Emma. Um, yeah, so I, and when, the, when I had gone to the ER, I, I was adamant on not telling my parents. I was just like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to make it through school. I can, I'll try to pay for this on my own and just, they don't need to know. Uh, I was just very hush hush about the whole thing and, uh, just wanted to do it on my own. Wanted to prove to myself that I could go through, that I could get through college, that I could get through school in this first semester. And that just wasn't really the case. It, it got just progressively harder and harder. And until in December that semester, I went to the ER again. And but this time it was just under less fortunate circumstances. I, the, I called the suicide hotline and and somehow put, I'm not I'm not sure how, but the police were notified and they came to my house and it it was just a really hard experience and they took me, but fortunately I had a, just a wonderful, uh, a wonderful Relief Society president who, well, who obviously saw a lot of, um, fire trucks and cop cars flashing their lights. And she is just the most wonderful, happy lady and just walked up to like the officers at my apartment and was just like, Hey, how can I help? And, uh, and, and so we were, and so she, instead of going in an ambulance, she was able to drive me to the ER and, and that was just a really big blessing. But yeah, this time it was, it was a little different and, and I called my parents or they were, they were notified somehow and they came and got me that night and we just went home and. So they drove you back up to Firth. Yep, the four hour drive back to Firth and, and it was, it was a really, really hard transition back home. I was scared of what people would think I was scared that they would ask questions. Um, it was just a really, and, and I was just really, I, at this point it was hard for me to get out of bed. And so there were some days when I was at home that my mom was like, okay, we're going to go take a walk to the mailbox and back and do that. And it was just, it was a really, really hard transition for me. Tell more, if you're okay, share more what kind of happened in December when you called the suicide hotline. Was it a, a one-time event that just put you in a really dark spot or was it a cumulative kind of slow burn that 
you know, each day got worse? Or what kind of, was there something that, this is kind of the last straw that put you in a really dark spot? I mean, it was it was probably more of the slow burn kind of thing, because at this point I hadn't, my classes were hopeless. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't going, I wasn't doing assignments. Um, Which seems way out of character for you if you got into BYU. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but... Um, yeah. And so I, I remember, I remember that day really well. It was just one of those days where I was like, I, I can't get out of bed. I can't today. And so I slept on and off and I didn't leave my room that day. I slept until five in the afternoon and, and was like, that's, that's it. Like I've got to, I've got to call someone. And I was, I was too scared to call my friends. I was too scared to call my Bishop. Just, I, I felt like I had burnt everyone out and it felt like you'd burnt everybody out. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning you'd reached out and they had helped, but you're just worried that, you know, here is Emma calling again and I feel yeah. like I've just... It's never good news when Emma calls, right? And that's, it, that was the feeling I had. And it's honest. And I know yeah. there's people right now listening who goes, oh, that's me. I have reached out to so many people that maybe it's better I just, you know, leave earth life because I've burnt yeah. everybody out. Yeah. Which is a lie. Right. I, I agree. Um, How did you know a suicide hotline to call? Did you know one to call? or? It, and I asked that, yeah. so if there's listeners that feel like that's what I want to do, I want to call a suicide hotline, but I don't know what who to call. Yeah, Share with I, us how you did that. Yeah, I'd actually done some research Good. and had the number for like the national one in my phone. And I had several others um, just in case I never, Good. I never really thought that I'd need them, but just in case a friend did, you know, and um, but yeah, I had the national suicide hotline in my phone under <laughs> NSH. And um, I was just like, well, <laughs> they don't know me. So maybe I can reach out to them because someone needs to know, like, are you glad you called? Even though fire trucks came to your house and and you ended up going back to Firth, are you glad you called? Depends on the day. That's all. It really does. Um, because that was having, you know, all those policemen in my apartment. It was something really hard for me to to overcome. I'm, am I glad I'm alive right now? Yes. But I wish, I guess I wish the situation had happened differently. Um, but It's honest. Yeah. Talk about going home. So this is December, mm -hmm. um, the end of the first semester. Yeah. If I've got the timeline. You're back in mm -hmm. Firth. Yep. This is not what you planned. Tell more. Keep telling your story, Emma. Yeah, I didn't. So in Firth, there's there at least at the time there was a singles branch, like and then YSA branch, and then there was my home ward, Firth ward, where I knew everyone, and everyone knew that I was going to BYU. Um, so it was, it was really hard for me to to go back to church and to decide, okay, do I want to go to this YSA branch or do I want to, you know, go be with my family where that's, you know, more secure. And I was just terrified of people asking me, oh, why are you, why are you home from BYU? You know, what's going on? And I was terrified of that. I did not want that at all. That question asked, I didn't, I didn't want to talk to anyone. I just didn't. So that was back when we had three hour church and it was, sometimes it was lucky if I just made it through the sacrament and then I was out, I was just leaving and, and it was really, it was really hard. It was just a really hard situation, but I had, I've, I've always been blessed with super good bishops and branch presidents. And I, I thank Heavenly Father a lot for those good men and good women in my life, um, who have helped me figure, figure this all out. Um, but it was kind of funny when, when I got home and started getting back into a routine, um, I realized <laughs> that I wanted to go on a mission and, and my bishop. And so I told this to my bishop at the time and he was like, okay, um, maybe, maybe we should slow down. Like maybe, maybe that's not the best idea, but I was I was adamant. I was 19. I was like, send me on a mission. Let's, let's fill these papers out. And, um, and so he was like, okay, like I will, you know, I'll, I'll think about it and I'll definitely, we'll pray, you know, we'll pray about it. And, and so he, he did. And 
he got he called me into his office the the next day and said emma it's not time for you to go on a mission but you need to prove to yourself that you can live on your own and so he was like i think you should get an apartment somewhere and just it, i don't care where you know it can be in idaho falls it can be in shelley which was super close it can be wherever just prove to yourself that you can live on your own and survive and that was not the answer I wanted to hear, <laughs> but, um, but immediately when he said that, I was like, Oh, I want to go back to Provo. And so this was summer 2017. And I, I did end up going back to Provo just for that summer semester. I didn't take any classes and, um, I had to re re-enroll to BYU, which is a whole nother can of worms. Um, but so I just went to Provo and I just worked that summer and, um, it was really, it didn't go like, I, I was fine. I survived. Nothing big happened, but I wasn't, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy with, with how it turned out because it was still hard for me to go to work and it was still hard for me to sometimes make friends. And, and so it just wasn't. And so I came, I came home in September when school started and just came home to work again and try to get back into BYU Keep telling your story. So now it's <laughs> fall of 2017, I think. Yeah. And you're back in Firth. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. The timeline here. Yeah. So long ago. Um, but yeah, I think I just, I just worked and I worked and I, I was solidly in um, our YSA branch by now and um, just working there. Um so, yeah, I was there from 2017 and the whole year of 2018 um, was kind of kind of just ups and downs, like really, really, really high highs and then really low lows. Because um, in the be in the beginning of 2018, I I was getting really depressed again, just really like suicidal and I was working closely with my state president at the time. I am so grateful for priesthood leaders. They are wonderful. Um, so I was working really closely with him and he was starting to get really worried about me. And, um, he recommended that I go to like an inpatient, um, psychiatric hospital. And so that took a lot of, a lot of thinking, um, and I was scared to bring that up to my parents because I knew that it would be expensive. I knew that it was not ideal. I was scared because I didn't know. I didn't know what that was like. I didn't know what people would think if they found out. Um, and but we eventually decided to go to um, a psychiatric hospital actually here in Orem. And because our insurance took it and um, and that turned out to be um, an interesting blessing. Um I knew, like, I knew I needed to go there. Um, and they, they worked out some medication adjustments and they found a combination that really worked. And, and that was just a big, big blessing. And so after that, after I got out of the hospital. How long were you there for? I was there for um, 14 days, I believe. So it was, it was a pretty short inpatient stay. Um, but I was there for 14 days and then I came home and the next couple months were hard, just adjusting to this new medicine, this new life after, um, after being in a hospital. And, um, but after that, I, I had really good friends. Uh, I had really good friends there in that YSA branch. And, and I just started to kind of soar again. And I, I felt like myself again, like pre pre senior year of high school, I felt like I felt like Emma and it was really nice. I was surrounded by just really good people who, you know, supported me and loved me and who trusted me. I ended up being um, our YSA and our, our branch was very small. There was not very many of us, but they they called me to be the Relief Society president towards the end of that. And that was that was something that worked out. <laughs> and I was really, I was really happy about that. Um, but yeah. And then after, um, 
so that was towards the end of two, end of 2018 and I had gotten back into BYU for for winter 2019 and was really nervous. <laughs> I, I was excited, but I was nervous. I was like, I want to, I want to go back. Like I, there have been too many, too many experiences that I've had that, um, have led me towards BYU that I, that I just can't deny that I'm supposed to be there. So, yeah. Um, thanks for talking about the inpatient. There's probably a stigma with all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> call, calling a suicide hotline, going to the ER, you know, going to therapy, there's a stigma even with that. But going to inpatient psych, yeah, um, whatever we call that, there's <laughs> probably a big stigma to that. And you were willing yeah. to do that. Talk to our listeners, If what's the difference between an intense 14-day inpatient versus, you know, ongoing therapy? What, could, what did they accomplish that helped you in those 14 days? You kind of mentioned medication, mm -hmm. but are there other things that really helped being inpatient? Yeah. So inpatient is just a lot of, a lot of group therapy, um, because there's other people there with you. And the biggest thing for me was the medicine. They were, doctors were able to like monitor me every day. And it was really interesting to looking back, um, to see how they did that because we were trying to adjust the medication and, and for one day they like bumped it too high and you could just, they, they could all just tell I was bouncing off the walls. I was just losing my mind and they were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to bump this down again. Um, and that ended up working. And, but there were a lot, I learned a lot of really neat, um, coping strategies from, from group therapy. And I learned a lot from those people who were in there. And it, the, the most surprising thing to me was how normal <laughs> the rest of the people in there were like, Interesting. They, there were mothers, there were just you know, your average Joes and your coworkers, you know, they were just normal people who had just a really hard time, who just had a hard experience. That. Yeah. And that that was what shocked me the most was that they're just normal. Like we're just having a hard time right now and we need help. I love that. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. So that you've talked to us about, you've had, you've been a Release Society president. That's cool. And any size <laughs> ward, you know, that's really awesome. And I'll bet there's people you've really blessed. Talk about then trying to go back to BYU and just pick up with your story. Yeah. Um, so I went back um, January 2019 and it was awesome. I was, oh, and I, f I forgot to mention, um, towards the end of 2018, um, I worked on putting in my mission papers again. Okay. And I actually submitted them on December 30th. And because my, my stake president was all for it. My, my branch president was all for it. Like I was feeling good. I was like, I, and in the final interview with my stake president, he was like, you know, I ask everyone this question, but for you, I want you to mean it. And he was like, do you think you'll be able to, you know, physically, mentally be able to do a mission? And and I sat there for a moment because I, I wanted to be honest. I wanted to be 100% sure. And I, I sat there and I was 100%. I told him, you know, president, if I'm going to come home from a mission, it's not going to be because of mental health. Like that, that's how good I was feeling. I was just, I was sure I was ready to go. And, and so we submitted those papers and, um, and so I waited weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, um, just, just waiting for that mission call to come. And so I could tell my friends, cause I kind of kept it a little quiet cause I didn't, I didn't know what would happen. And so probably, probably in March or April, um, I get a call from my stake president and he's like, it's good news, just not the kind you want to hear. And so I was like, well, that's bad news. That's just plain bad news. <laughs> And he was like, he was like, they, you know, they looked at your papers and they said, you know, everything looks good. We just want it to be a year since you, um, had been in the hospital. And so he said, you can resubmit them in April. That's when I went into the hospital and, and then they'll reevaluate then. And I was mad. I was so, 
I was so mad. I, I had felt like Heavenly Father had been leading me towards this moment and I just didn't get it. And so I, I had a very stern talk with the Lord and just in prayer and was like, why, why did you tell me to do this and then not give it to me? And it was really, really cool experience because after that prayer, um, it was almost as if the Holy Ghost like grabbed me by the shoulders, looked like there wasn't a person there, but grabbed me by the shoulders, looked me in the face and was like, Emma, I need you in Provo more than I need you anywhere else right now. And that was that. And it was, oh, it was. And after that, I was like, okay, like mission's not for me right now. I need to be in Provo. And, and that semester I got to, I got to help a lot of people. And I was really, really grateful for that. And I've, there, there were definitely people that I would not have met if I had gone, that I really needed to meet and really needed to interact with and hopefully help. Um, but I was just so, I was so glad that I didn't go on a mission at that point. Is it in the cards? We'll see, you know, but, um, I was glad that I chose to, to stay and not resubmit my papers, stay in Provo and meet those people that I needed to and have those experiences that I needed to have. Um, I, thanks for talking about the mission and even saying I'm mad <laughs> yeah. and sometimes just stuff happens and it makes us mad and we get mad at God or we get mad at the church or we get mad at the process or we get mad at yeah. a priesthood leader and we go, wait a second, you know, everybody else got their call in 14 days and <laughs> yeah. mine's been months and then it's a sort of a no yeah. for a year and I don't always know what to make of all that, but I think the best, my best advice is the person walking that road needs to see, receive personal revelation. Maybe a priesthood leader can also, or a parent, but I think it's sort of your road to figure out what's going on here. And you need to process your emotions and turn to God and figure this out. And one thought that came to my mind, which is probably something you've considered is that you were more committed to BYU. Um, knowing that the mission was not going to be something that could work for you for a period of time. And maybe if you'd gone to BYU, you would have still had the mission as kind of an open option. Mm -hmm. But since you did everything you could to go on the mission, um, that and that door shut for you for at least a period of time, that it then, it then focused you on BYU uh, in a way that may not have been possible. So even though I think your impressions were to go on a mission and, yeah. and that did not happen. And that's sort of somewhat unreconcilable. I don't know. That's just a <laughs> thought that came to my mind because it sounds like you're now at BYU and you're able to help people talk more about that. How are you helping people at BYU? Um, <laughs> is that through a calling or is that through just sharing your story with depression or? Um, I found that sharing my story a lot has I hope helped others. Um, How did you start to do that? I just, I've ever, ever since this um, started, I've just always felt like I need to. I, um, oh. yeah. Oh, oh yeah, um, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I've just always felt like I needed to. And because in high school, I didn't know anyone who struggled with depression. Like I didn't know any of my classmates. I, I had like heard, heard of it, but it was never anything real to me until I had it. And, and I didn't know, I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know who would understand. Um, so I've, I felt strongly that I, I need to be open about this so that others aren't, um, aren't alone. They, they don't feel alone. And just, just knowing for me, at least just knowing that someone else knows um, is really, really powerful. And, and it just makes me so much more grateful for the atonement and how, how individually Jesus Christ knows each of us and how perfectly he knows us and how perfectly he can communicate with me um, what I need. And it's just... I am so amazed at the atonement because 
I, I just think it's impossible not to love someone when you know them so perfectly as the Savior does. No, obviously. Walk us through the timing. When did you start? We're recording this podcast in May of 2020, May 11th. I think mm -hmm. May 12th is your birthday. <laughs> yes. So this podcast will come out after your birthday and you'll be 23 or 22. 20, yeah. You'll be 22 mm -hmm. when our listeners are hearing your story. When did, just say our two again, when did you go back to BYU after the mission was kind of not a possibility and start telling your story? So January yeah. of 2019? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So January of 2019, I got that call from my stake president probably in February. And so I was just really, I was like, okay, I'm here in Provo for a purpose. Let's, let's go. And, and, you know, the mental health was still really a challenge. It was still really hard. And that, that semester I did not have good grades. My, my education has had to be drastically did you, adapted. Did you still see therapy? Have you are you seeing a therapist now? And have you seen a therapist while you've been at BYU since early 2019? Yes. Um, so I've I when when I went back to um back in winter 2019, um I I had again graduated from from therapy back home. Um and so I didn't my mom had mentioned that maybe maybe seeing a therapist would be helpful. Um, uh, but it was just very, just kind of like, you know, if, if you want. And I was like, you know, I think, I think I'll be okay. Um, and, but then things got hard again. And so I did start seeing a new therapist. Um, I've had five total and I did see a new one in Provo and ended up switching to another one who I now see and who I really, really like. He's, he's helped me a lot and has helped me figure out a lot of things and a lot of just different coping things and how to reduce shame and all this cool stuff. Um, and so, but yeah, that first semester back was still far from perfect. Um, my grades were not good. They, I was placed on academic warning, um, and I didn't, I didn't, uh, go to class. I didn't do school for the spring and summer terms. Um, but instead I got a job at the MTC and wow. that was definitely, that was definitely one of the reasons why I needed to be in Provo. And so I worked there as a TRC actor. So I just role played with missionaries. I, every time I was on um, MTC campus, I signed a contract. I was not a member. I like, if anyone asked, I was like, Nope, I'm not a member. I'm just here to learn. And that was such a blessing. That was, it, it helped my testimony grow. And there would be, sometimes I'd be sitting in lessons with these missionaries being like, do I really believe this? Like this, this whole first vision thing sounds crazy. Just do I really believe this? And then the spirit would always be like, yes you do, you know this. And, and I, I met tons of just wonderful people, wonderful missionaries there and had a lot of wonderful experiences there, but it was still really hard. I had some really hard challenges during that, during that spring and summer, um, and going into fall that were, that were really hard, but I had really good friends to help me through that. How are you doing now? It's May of 2020. How are you May doing now? Um, Good question. Um, <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, I'm on, you know, a medication that's right for me. I'm really learning a lot through therapy and, um, but it was hard because of the, I can't remember if it was in December or if it was this January, but I was hospitalized again in a inpatient facility and, and that was hard. That was really hard. I did. I didn't want to go this time. Like I was very firm against not going this time, but I went anyway. And, and you know, that, that helped. That was another thing that I needed to go through. Not, not one that I necessarily wanted to, but something that I needed to. And I've ever, ever since then, it's been, it's been a lot better. You know, school's still been hard. Um, it's, but I, BYU has wonderful like academic counselors and they've helped me a ton. I've had great professors who have been so understanding and, um, and so it's been hard, but it's very worth it. And it's very, th things are doing well right now. I wish our listeners could see Emma because as I'm <laughs> seeing her across the table, um, she's full of light and there's 
a brightness and a countenance in her disposition and an, a spark in the way she speaks. And I just sense somebody who's full of life and, <laughs> and you're, and that gets muted by your depression at times. And absolutely. Um, I thought when you, when you went back to inpatient, I thought to myself, um, I hope you don't feel like you're back to square one. I hope you look at, even though you're back in inpatient, you didn't want to be back in inpatient and you could think, oh, here we go again. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I've made no progress. I'm back to sort of square one and the downward spiral that thinking could cause for you. I'd hope you'd think I'm not back to square one. This is just part of my journey to continue to make progress. And so I, I'm, yeah, I'm an impatient and I'm still learning about myself, but I love the way you talked about second impatient um, that happened more recently, or maybe there's one we haven't mentioned even. Um, uh, how many impatients has there been? Three. There's been three, so yeah. there is one in there. Yeah. <laughs> but I like the way, to me, it's just part of your journey to understand and to solve this and make it manageable versus maybe a voice that would come to you and says, oh, back, I'm back to square one. I've made no progress. This is never going to be resolved. I'll just keep in this cycle forever. And I I don't know if that's a voice from Satan. It could be, or just a bad voice that comes with people that have depression. These voices just come and they keep a cycle down in a way that's not healthy. Yeah. Talk about, you mentioned coping. Some of the things that your therapist teach you as coping skills. Any examples come to mind of for our listeners of something that you've learned that you'd like to share with our listeners that may need some of the same skills? Yeah. Um, cause a lot of, um, a lot of my, I guess therapy has been based around like shame and not feeling good enough. And because I would even get shame about my shame because it would be like, come on, Emma, like there are people out there who have real problems. Like your life is great. Why are you so sad? And so I would get shame about that and it would just be awful. It would be this awful cycle of just shame, shame, shame. And so I've learned a lot about shame and, um, I'm trying to think of like specific things I've learned, but just really just trying to be patient with yourself and recognizing that I'm doing the best and, and looking, looking back on past experiences, like I was doing what was best for me, what I thought was best for me at the time. And that's, that's been a really helpful thought for me that, you know, yeah, like that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, but I was doing my best. I was doing what I thought was best for me. And, and then there's even more, um, I guess just practical physical ones, you know, like, you know, to stop self-harm urges, you know, hold an ice cube and, um, or, you know, kind of one that I've found really useful is that, you know, you get urges, impulses to do something. And like, I, I can't remember the exact amount of time, but like urges will last for like 20 minutes. And if you can ride that wave for 20 minutes, then, you know, read a book or watch a funny movie. Or if you can just keep yourself distracted for, for 20 minutes, then, you know, you can, you can get through that. And, and so I found, I found a lot of different things that have been helpful. Like humor for me is really big. <laughs> I, I, um, did a stand-up comedy routine once for a war talent show and it's one of the proudest moments of my life. <laughs> um, it was, it was really, it was really fun. It was really fun coming up with that. And then like whenever I'm stressed, I, with school or something, I just watch a funny video on YouTube. Like it really has helped. And, um, Music's also a big one for me. I, I'm really, I'm really into music. I'm really like, I don't play any instruments very well, but, um, I love film scores. I'm big into that. Um, big into like the way music makes us feel and, and stuff like that. Those are, those are the things that I found most helpful. I love those examples of coping skills <laughs> and shame. This is one of the umbrella themes of this podcast series is the de-shaming podcast. <laughs> between all the brave people like you, Emma, that come on and talk about difficult things. And there is a lot of shame around so many subjects um, and so many personal stories. Um, I think we all have personal stories of difficult times in our lives. And I think 
then shame keeps those stories closeted and they keep them to ourselves and they fester. And if we can talk to them with a therapist or a trusted friend or a priesthood leader, um, then I think it de-shames that experience and we we get it out of our minds a little bit and we just do better. Yeah. And I think your generation's doing better. Um, but I I really believe shame, I don't know if this is clinically true, but I think <laughs> it's one of Satan's greatest tools to keep us in bad places oh, absolutely and keep that. our minds in bad spots so that we're not able to progress or feel like we're worthy of God's love. I think that's one of his greatest lies is, is that we are outside of his love and we're not worthy to pray or receive his help. Even if the shame is not sin-related, your shame isn't sin-related. It's just whatever, you know, it's just yeah. shame around your personal story um, that doesn't involve sin. Although neither of us are saying you're perfect, but it's mm-hmm. just, you know, there's a lot of shame that comes into people's lives that's not sin-related. And sometimes then we think we're not worthy of God's love and and so we don't turn to God. And I think the God I believe in loves all of his children, want all of them to turn to him. And we're never outside of his love. Talk about, um, you've mentioned the atonement. I want to come to that. I've lear- I- I'm going to make a statement and you tell me if you feel okay about it. I, yeah. I, I look at the atonement of Jesus Christ and I don't believe it'll like take away my physical illnesses. Like if I'm suffering from pancreatic disease, just like it won't take away my emotional illness. I can't, I think God has the power to take away my emotional illness and my pancreatic disease Mm -hmm. as an example, but I don't think it's necessarily the atonement of Jesus Christ and just accessing more of the atonement that'll heal my, I don't have a pancreatic problem, (laughs) listeners. I'm just using that as an example. I'm glad. And I do have some emotional challenges. I've opened up another podcast, but I've always felt the atonement is a way to just feel more hope and more of the Savior's love. Tell me how you feel about that, or do you feel the atonement can actually solve depression? Um, I think, I mean, I think it can. Um, not not by like healing it, but um, just by providing ways to um, overcome it. Um, Good bit by bit. Um, Cause yeah, I have said a lot of prayers and I have been like, if you could just help me out a little bit, like that'd be, that'd be great. Um, but you know, he's never taken away it away, but I'm really glad that he hasn't he's answered prayers though. to help. Oh, for sure. He has, there have been so many just beautiful, beautiful experiences and beautiful answers to prayers. Um, I, I remember, uh, I remember an experience in particular. Um, it was during that summer 2017 when I was here in Provo. And I was a few days from from coming back home to Firth. And I was watching this TV show. And I don't even remember what it was talking about. But something on the show really upset me. And just kind of sent me into a panic attack. It was just awful. And so I was home alone. None of my roommates were home. And um, just kind of laying on the couch, just crying and kind of yelling at God being like, why? Like, this is, this stinks. Um, why, why have you done this? And, and it was almost, you know, the Holy Ghost didn't say anything to me, but it was almost as if time kind of stood still for a minute. And I was just laying there on my couch, still crying. Um, still, still just a mess, but, but in that moment, I felt like heaven was acutely aware of me, like all eyes were just watching and that, and I felt that heavenly father was there with me and he was crying too. You know, it didn't, it didn't bring him joy to see me like this. Um, he was crying too. Yeah. How healing is that? Yeah. And like, he, he didn't take it away. Like I still struggled for several more minutes and, but that experience has just been very insightful for me just to be like, you know, he sees us, he sees us and he sees what we're going through. I I don't think that, I don't think any communication with heavenly father is a waste, you know, whether it's what we want or whether it's not. And it's just, it's never a waste. I love that. And I love all you've done to sort of hit this head on and address it. And I think that's part of our responsibility is 
as children of God to do all we can is as well as pray and ask for the atonement to heal and give hope. And we kind of do our end of the bargain to do difficult things like inpatient and go to therapists and try new medication and all these things that sometimes some personalities say, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sort of white knuckle it and grip my teeth yeah. and just solve this on our own. There's a Puritan sometimes part of our culture that's very independent that sometimes yeah. says we're going to just, I don't know the right vocabulary, but <laughs> I think it takes a, I think it's a combination of our humility to recognize we need help. Yeah. I've, as I've shared on the podcast, I've seen a therapist twice in my life, once as a singles word bishop. And that took a bit of humility because I'm supposed to be the guy that fixes everybody and has right. all the right yeah. answers. And here on one afternoon a, a week, I'm sitting with my therapist, um, trying to figure out sort of my emotional, um, empty gas tank as I try to serve others. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad that I have touched that desert a little bit. I haven't been in the middle of the desert like you have, Emma, but I'm, I've been in the outskirts enough to have more empathy. Um, and I, and I'm glad for that. Yeah. It's helped me to not offer simple platitudes like just suck it up and then right. get on with school and get out of bed and you know because I I recognize and I'm really tender hearted for you that you couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. There was no way you could get out of bed. Yeah. There was no way you could do any better than you were just doing to just survive. And thank you for surviving. And something something you said um reminded me of um an experience I had. It was, it's actually a dream. Um, yeah, tell us your dream. Yeah. Um, it, so I had this back in high school and had this dream that, and at the time I didn't realize it was anything special, but when I told, um, a couple people about it, they were like, that's crazy. Um, but so I had this dream that I was, um, that I was a doctor in a hospital and, and I had like the big long white lab coat and and I was and in this, a face mask. <laughs> yeah, I did not have a face mask on in the this dream. This is a pre-COVID dream. Yeah. <laughs> Back before that was a problem. Um, but I was I was standing in this busy, busy, busy hospital hallway, and like there were doctors just bustling everywhere. There were noises, there were like PA systems just shouting things, and it was so noisy and chaotic. And and you know how dreams are like I knew that I had a patient somewhere waiting for me. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know who, I didn't know where, um, but I knew, I knew someone was waiting for me. And, um, but the problem was, you know, this, this hallway was so crowded and on top of all the crowded and the, and the hustle and bustle, I, I also had a cast on my leg and a crutch. So, you know, on top of all these people, I couldn't move very quickly. Um, and so there I was in the hallway with my crutch and my uh, cast and all of a sudden the the hallway kind of just died down and like until it was empty and there was it was silent. And all of a sudden this other doctor who um, I the one thing I knew about this other doctor was that he was more experienced than I was. I didn't know anything else, but I knew he had more experience and he didn't say a word, but he just kind of um, led me to this other hospital room just right there in the hallway. And he didn't say a word. He just sat me down on the bed and started to take the cast off of my leg. And, and once he had finished that, he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, Emma, I need to let, I need you to let me fix you first. Let me fix you first. And then he started to rewrap my leg and I woke up. And I, I, I didn't realize how important that was to me until I shared it with a few other people. Um, cause back in high school, um, part of, part of what was kind of driving this feeling of not feeling good at, of not being good enough was if I wasn't serving someone, if I wasn't helping someone, then I was worthless. I couldn't, I, I was worth nothing. Like if I wasn't helping someone constantly, I was worthless. And, and this dream just showed me that, um, I need to let, um, the savior fix me first. And, um, and so like throughout, throughout all of this, like I've seen the savior, not, not just, you know, 
his hand, but I've seen it in the faces of my therapists, of my psychiatrists, of bishops and friends. And um, God is not just a God of spiritual things, but he's a God of everything. And so that would make sense that he would be in everything in my life. What a beautiful dream. (laughs) Thank you. What a pure revelation dream. Um, that's, and the, the words you said about, I've seen the Savior in the face of my therapist and in all these different things. I, I look at, um, do you worry that your future husband won't like this about you? I've always, not necessarily it's kind of a like scary it. question to ask. Yeah, um, but not necessarily that he won't like it, but that he might get tired of it. And but you know, I I, I hope that he would stay because he's not going to be perfect either. As much as I want him to be, he's probably not going to be perfect. He's probably going to have you know baggage of his own. And um, I I would hope that I would be you know the kind of person that would stick with that baggage, whatever it may be. I mean, I'm not your priest or leader or your <laughs> father or anybody that has, you know, pers- any thoughts for you, but I think that whoever marries you will love this about you. Thank you. And I think he'll look at someone who's done a lot of heavy work and a lot of heavy lifting to put themselves in a really good spot. And you know Emma really well. And you have done some really hard things to get a really good foundation underneath you. And you could have kicked the can down the road and sort of said, I'm going to deal with this at a later time. But the fact you sort of dealt with it the very best way you can now and hit it head on and all the skills you've learned, I think whoever marries you will think this whole, your depression, if that's the right diagnosis, Mm -hmm. I think that's what you've been using We'll look at this as somebody who's really remarkable and the very person I want to be my wife and the mother of my children. I don't think you'll look at depression as a negative. I think some guys would, but yeah. you only need to marry one guy. <laughs> and, he will, <laughs> and he will recognize the skills you have will be able to help him and help your future children. And they, none of them may ever suffer from depression. Mm. But the skills you've learned, the understanding about therapy, about medication, about the atonement, about reaching out for help, will help you as a mother with your kids. Oh, for sure. And help you help him. And I think he will be glad for all this work that you've done and this really self-awareness of who you are. And I often, we haven't read this quote on the podcast for a while, maybe 10 (laughs) episodes for our regular listeners, but... (laughs) I love this quote. Um, It's by Henry Norman, a a Catholic priest, and he talks about the wounded healer. And this is who you are and many of our listeners. A minister's service, that's you, Emma, will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership or motherhood or parenthood is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. So you know some deserts, you know the middle of some deserts where there's nothing growing. And I think the fact you've done this work between the ages of roughly 19 and 22 or 17 and 22, the last five years, really helps you. I think you know the Savior in a much more personal and intimate way because sometimes that's all that you've had is Heavenly Father and the Savior. And I think you've learned how to reach out to friends and know that that's part of being is reaching out to friends. And yeah, I think we both know there's still hard work ahead for you and hard days and it's not going to be, but I think you're in a spot where you're, and I think you'll look back at the rest of your life and recognize this period of time really made the rest of your life possible and that mission not happening and BYU expectations being much different than you'd thought. So that's just kind of some thoughts as I've, get some feelings about your future and who you are and the work you've done. I think you're awesome. Thank you. Um, And your friend Celeste is nodding her head. (laughs) We're kind of at the hour mark. Any last things you want to share with our listeners? Uh, Good question. Um, Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to go through anything 
<laughs> life is full of hard things, but um, I just, as as I was thinking about um, just the things I've gone through, um, I look back on, you know, parts of it when I was, you know, the happiest and just little experiences where I was really happy. And, and so on those days when it's really hard to be happy and it's really hard to, to feel any sort of positive emotion, you know, I think back on those, um, those experience, those happy experiences I've had. And I just think, you know, those will be back and, and they'll be better than ever. Um, and I just want to give a quick shout out to prayer. <laughs> Prayer's great. Um, because I would have some really cool experiences where, um, some, something, you know, I'd be having a really hard day and something positive would happen in my day. And I would get very clear, um, impressions uh, from the Holy ghost, just saying that's because your mom prayed for you, or that's because your seminary teacher prayed for you, or that's because so-and-so prayed for you. Like they were very, very specific. And, and so keep praying for your friends who are struggling, who you don't even know who are struggling. Um, pray for them. And, and that that's not a waste. Like I said, communication with God is never a waste. And what he says to us is never a waste. Communication with God is never a waste. What a great final line. <laughs> The two talks that I love, um, I think Emma's probably familiar with these, and most of our listeners, um, my favorite talks are Like a Broken Vessel by Elder Holland, where he opens up about his own emotional journey. And I loved how he, this wonderful apostle, was vulnerable and talked about his journey. And I love Sister Alberto's talk. Um, the title of that talk is Through Cloud and Sunshine, Lord, Abide With Me, that is just a beautiful talk about emotional illness and trauma and the suicide of her own father and the de-shaming of so many subjects in that talk as she just talks so many vulnerably and honestly. She is one of my new heroes, just like you are, Emma. So Emma Meekum, thank you for reaching out and (laughs) being brave enough to share your story that brings hope and healing and perspective to our listeners. You have a great life ahead of you and thank you, our listeners, This is Richard Osler, your host, signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.